Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Church and State. The issue of Christian citizenship has been a controversial one throughout history. No doubt about it. It's very difficult to live out. Um, The nation is super divided, this country is, over politics right now. So, question is, what would the relationship be between church and state for us? What should it be? For centuries, the state, I should tell you, controlled the church. It did. And from the 4th century all the way sort of through the 17th century, the church and the state got married. But since the 17th century... The two institutions have been growing more and more apart than ever before, where it's really adversarial today, the relationship. So how do we react to that topic? How do we deal with this? Who do we look to? I often go to the example of an exceptional man whose life has always been of interest to me. From the start, he opposed Adolf Hitler's Third Reich and the Nazis' outrageous crimes. He's a well-known Lutheran pastor, theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he did his best to sabotage the Nazi policies. And he eventually even supported the plot to assassinate Hitler. Now, this is a pastor involved in the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And he started by fighting the Nazi efforts to kind of control the Protestant churches Because for him, what was happening to the Jews was of singular importance. For him, this was an outgrowth of his faith and Christian discipleship. This is what Christians do. He wrote a controversial essay once called The Church and the Jewish Question in response to the Nazis persecuting them. And he helped organize what was known as the Confessing Church. And in the mid-1930s, as World War II started, uh, his sermons and his contacts kind of aroused Nazi suspicion. And in January 1938, he was banned from public meetings in Berlin, and he became like a traveling seminary. He would continue to preach and teach truth on the run, and his story is really relevant for us today. In fact, he traveled to this country in the 30s to avoid persecution, yet his conscience gnawed at him. He wrote this, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people, end quote. And he did return to Germany, and he was further harassed by the Nazis. He was forbidden to speak in public. He had to report all of his activities in 1940 to the police. In 1941, he was forbidden to preach, print material, In the meantime, he joined kind of an underground German military intelligence movement called the Abwehr, and um, they were at the center of the anti-Hitler resistance, and he became a courier for them with documents. This is a pastor doing this, okay? It's a massive mission, as you're going to see if you read Romans 13 and the New Testament's teaching on Christians in government, which is marked by humble submission and obedience to the governing authorities. So this is a huge thing we're dealing with here. He was practicing civil disobedience. And consequently, he was arrested in April 1943 for these activities and these trumped-up charges. 
And after the failure of the July plot on Hitler's life, 1944, which is dramatized in a pretty good movie called Valkyrie, the discovery of secret documents related to his conspiracy came about. He was discovered. He was arrested, led away. As he concluded his final Sunday service, he asked an English prisoner to remember him and the words if he would re ever reach his home. He said, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. Check this out. He was executed by hanging at dawn, April 9th, 1945, just two weeks before U.S. soldiers liberated that camp and a month before the surrender of Nazi Germany in World War II. I like this. The camp doctor that kind of witnessed the execution, witnessed it, wrote this. Quote, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was most moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout, so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer, and he climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Was Dietrich Bonhoeffer a hero and a martyr to be imitated? Or was he a villain, a rebel, a man of God who sinned, having been part of a well-intended but maybe unbiblical revolutionary movement? Stop evil. His legacy is still being debated today. This is a massive issue. He influenced men like Martin Luther King Jr., and things that happened in the civil rights movement. So here you have a living example of the great parallel and the paradox between this text and the one we wrapped up last time from Romans 12, when the Apostle Paul talked about the look of radical Christian love in the world. That being, we have two commands from God there to us that admonish us to do two incredibly hard painful and countercultural things that display Christ, but also rub our flesh the wrong way. The first one, you are to love and bless and do good to our enemies, your enemies, and make peace with everyone as much as it depends on you. That's tough enough. Second one, today, another universal command, all Christians, to obey Submit to the government, all governments in authority over us, whatever kind of government that might be, communist, totalitarian, like the Third Reich, Nazi Germany, socialist, a monarchy. There's no exceptions in the text. Can't find any. And it's relevant because our relationship to government is part of everyday life. It happens to you every day when you leave this building on Sunday, midweek meetings on Tuesday. You're the church in the world. And by the way, just by proclaiming Jesus, we talked about this in our men's group this week, just by proclaiming Jesus, you've made a political statement because you've said Jesus is Lord. Back then in the first century, that was a political statement. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Can't avoid it. It's every day. It's living in two kingdoms, the early church father Augustine said. We're in the city of man, living in the city of God. So politics, politics is this. The English word is the science of government. It means dealing with politics, structure, its organization, its administration, 
And the new understanding of that in the New Testament begins in this text. So we need to respond, know this, and respond accordingly. So this universal command to submit, let me tell you, this is tough. I mean, I'm a bit of a history buff. I follow politics and worldviews. I write about it. I know what's going on in this nation. So do you. I'm aware that this text commands me right now to submit to a secular-leaning government that legalizes the killing of unborn babies, that has legalized same-sex marriage, moving more aggressively every day in the direction of legitimizing every new letter in the LGBTQ++++ movement. Our leaders could get us in some kind of ungodly military conflict. They may want to confiscate more of your hard-earned dollars and taxes to spend on God only knows what, and you're going to submit to that. That bugs me. I don't know about you. But we're still commanded to submit to the governing authorities. Why? Why? We're going to explore this church and state issue over the next two Sundays to fully understand and apply this. We read seven verses today for the context. Today we'll just tackle the first four, which gives us, number one, a call to authority, and number two, a warning of authority. A call to authority and a warning of authority. And Paul is so good to us in this text by inspiration of the Spirit. He's giving us the what of government and then the why. Let's look at this call to authority. Just look at the first verse of Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Again, that's remarkable command and an argument from Scripture. You know why? Because in the first century, the church had no voice and no vote. They had nothing to say about how governors, emperors, kings, Caesars of that time came to power. You know, we're we're really spoiled in America that way, that we can speak. No such thing as elections existed. Not in nation states in biblical times. They were either monarchies or dictatorships, empires. For the most part, too, government in ancient times was ruthless, was evil, was pagan. When Paul is writing this letter in the mid-50s AD, they had just been driven out of the Holy Land, the church. They had gone through a period of persecution under an emperor named Claudius. He was killed. He was then succeeded by Nero. At the time this was written, Nero was actually trying to keep peace in the region. For all religions, he was trying to accommodate Christianity. But they were starting to increase taxes big time to fund some programs and things they wanted to do. And we'll get into taxes next time. So I think Paul is preparing his readers for that and what was to come and for us so that we can respond the right way to what you can translate as ruling powers. The authorities are ruling powers. So here, in a nutshell, kind of summarizing the attitude, the expectation is Christian citizens are to be redemptive, not revolutionary. And if any government, by the way, deserved to be overthrown, it would be the Roman Empire under Nero. He came later to hate Christians and persecute them. In fact, he had a number of them rounded up, dipped in wax, tied to stakes, and burned like candles in his own garden. That's persecution. And then, of course, if you follow history, he ordered that Rome be set on fire, was obliterated, and he blamed the Christians for it. 
as a scapegoat, and that set off the first official wave of persecution in the church. And still, this is the foundation of Christian citizenship, submission to all authority. It's very simple, straightforward, command or imperative, using a Greek word we've talked many times about before that literally means to come under, to submit here or be subject to, would be used as a metaphor to describe a soldier in the military that had to line up in rank and come under the authority of a superior officer. That's the word used here. If it's not militarily used, you could talk about a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, right? In fact, the same Greek word is used in the context of Ephesians 5 and 6. Wives submit to husbands. Husbands unto Christ, Christ to the Father, slaves to master, children to parents, students even to teachers, whether they're mean or cranky, doesn't matter. I mention that because everybody should be used to, by now, submitting to someone. It happens all the time. You do it every day. No less a theologian than Bob Dylan said it. You got to serve somebody, right? It happens. And by the way, this isn't just Paul talking like this. Peter, the apostles Peter and Paul, we talked about this a couple of years ago in our series from this letter, Strangers on Earth, 1 Peter 2, 13 starts, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? There it is. Submit to the authorities, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. But we live as people who are still free at the beginning of verse 16. Same word as submission. There's no qualifiers, like I said. No conditions. I think some of us like to think the idea that we only submit to conservative, God-fearing, Republican, biblically-based governments. It's not there. Sorry. Life would be easier if it were. It's not. That's not part of God's will and redemptive plan for the world. Because in part, in the world, he has these other earthly institutions, whether it's marriage, family, church, government, they're established. The word there literally means to be put in place. They're appointed by God, but they involve and are run by fallible, fleshly, sinful people in a sin-cursed world. But the absolute command, the ideal, the idea remains the same. Authority. Authority too. God is the world's absolute authority. He's ours. He's the one who put all this place, all these government authorities in place. The rule is his. And get this. He even appoints each and every ruler in every time and place. And that's a tough pill to swallow. A lot of people don't believe that. Because then in their mind, it makes God the author of evil when you have an evil government right? Because God ordained it. Or they think awful, harsh governments, Christians will be submitting to that. And that's problematic. That's a problem. So God couldn't have done that. It couldn't mean this. There has to be an exception, right? I mean, we're not living in a monarchy today. There's no king over us, is there? We don't have to obey this government or the ones we don't like or aren't biblical, right? I mean, don't Cubans get off the hook. They had the Castro brothers, for Pete's sakes. No, they don't. North Koreans, 
That guy's a whack job. What a, obey him, really? Russians under Putin? No exceptions in the text. You know, ultimately, how presidents like Washington and Lincoln and Bush, Obama, Trump came to sit in the White House? You know how they got there? God put them there. God put them there. And you need to be reminded of this because depending on how elections go, this way or that way, you might be tempted to think Jesus was a Republican or a Democrat. And that's nonsense, of course. He's the ultimate independent. He's got the only vote that counts at the end. Therefore, this command applies to every authority of government. Presidents, prime ministers, if you're in Europe, legislatures, police, governor, local officials. And even though Peter calls us aliens and strangers in the world, we still have the truth, we have the spirit, and that should make us the best citizens in the world. God expects us to obey this call to be submissive to every form of government, whether it be local, state, or federal. And Paul reminded the church that, writing to Titus. Titus 3.1, he said, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Why can't we disobey a rotten government? Or can we be a godly rebel? Well, it's God's will of desire, his revealed will, as you're going to see again, that our submission, our citizenship is going to be redemptive. It's going to be evangelistic, like Peter wrote. The ultimate motivation for obedience, by the way, is not avoiding punishment, although that's here in verse 3. It's for the Lord's sake. Like everything else we do, we submit to governing authorities to glorify or make much of God. And that comes from a gratitude attitude. Amen? Amen? All right. So we are depending by faith. We're submitting to the sovereignty and the providence of God in the affairs of men, including politics. All right, because they're sent by him, it says in 1 Peter. By the way, this is another good reason to believe in the sovereignty of God, because if he's not sovereign over the affairs of men, this whole thing is messed up and we have no hope. But that means this. All nations for all times capitalist, whatever system it is, socialist, communist, has been sovereignly put into place by God for his purposes. Just like he's appointed God-haters in positions of authority, and some of them became God-lovers. You ever heard of Nebuchadnezzar? Cyrus? Right? Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant, my minister, it says in Jeremiah 25. In Daniel 5, Nebuchadnezzar was judged and then he said later, he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints it over whomever he chooses. Well, there it is. Jesus. Jesus reminded Pilate of this truth. Remember when he was before him, second trial, John 19? Pilate tried to intimidate the Lord, telling him, look, I can, I can release you if you just give me the right answers. What did Jesus say? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Pilate was God's man for that time and that place because God does what he wills with the nations. The role of government, however, 
our responsibility to the state remains the same, even though the Lord appoints, predetermines who goes into office. And it's similar, really. The same words are used, appointing in the Greek, when God's talking about his election in salvation, as it says in Acts 13, as many as been appointed to eternal life, ordained to eternal life, believed. So give me more text, right? Because this thing, no exceptions, really, even the bad guys God puts in there. Well, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight: For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Ah. Proverbs 8, 15 in the first part of 16. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule. I mean, there's no debate here. Daniel 2 adds about God, he removes kings and establishes kings. So you get it. It's pretty comprehensive. God is the authority who appoints each and every authority. Let's look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Again, pretty straightforward. To rebel against the state is to rebel against God. And rebellion brings punishment. God set up governments to do that, by the way. Punish evildoers and lawbreakers. You disobey the governor of this state, you're disobeying God, generally speaking. God's not happy. Believe me, according to Scripture, when he sees angry protests and violent protests and revolution in the street, it's not what he's about. And it's not what we see here. I said this a couple of years ago on this. You can relate to and support things like Black Lives Matter if you want or whatever have you. But what you shouldn't support is people disobeying God's word and civil law by taking to the streets, burning and breaking into private property and stealing and hurting other people. In fact, that's taking the law into your own hands, which is vengeance. And we got through saying last time in Romans 12, that breaks God's law. Because vengeance is of the Lord and he will repay evil. So that leads to all kinds of big questions, just that point alone. As I texted some of the guys yesterday in our group, I told them, here, you want a, you want a juicy piece of food for thought? The American Revolutionary, the American Revolution, War on Independence, biblical or not, don't rush to answer. Don't rush to answer. Not till you're done with Romans 13. I'll give you an answer. Yes and no. <laughs> How's that? It's a good one. I'll tell you why. I think so. Yes, biblical, if the war of independence, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll go the other way, reverse. It was not biblical if the primary reason was a war over taxes, which a good argument can be made that it was, right? Taxation without representation. Remember the Boston Tea Party? All that kind of stuff. Is that exception in Romans 13? Nope. Can't find that. However, I would say yes, if after a turn of events, the American government is coming to the defense of innocent life being taken by the British crown. In that sense, I believe, I can, I can argue, it would be justified. It all depends on how you define and look at the war of independence and the events of it. So you see this gets a little, a little dicey, a little sticky. So why submit? 
Why submit? Let's look at the warning of authority in verses 3 and 4, back in the text. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. All right? In fact, we'll read 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The motive or the mandate of why God created government sovereignly, all governments, is a twofold purpose, folks. Fundamentally, it's very simple. The restraint of evil and the promotion of that which is good or excellent, literally in the Greek, the honorable conduct or behavior of people. That's the most important thing God has instituted government to do and be, even though ruling officials won't always do that. They're going to rule badly or evil sometimes. We know that. God has his reasons, but the rationale for government is pretty basic. It doesn't exist primarily to provide entitlement programs. Millions of social programs, though some of those safety nets can be helpful and good. Or it's not to provide extra and immoral freedoms like we have in America today. That's never was God's intent for government. The main job of government, according to God, very simple. Punish evil, promote what is good. And yes, governments don't always do that well. Nonetheless, this is God's idea. The mandate remains the same, and praise God, that's why we have police. That's why we have FBI agents. That's why we have the military. This is why we have security at schools now more than ever. And I'm glad, therefore, we have this ordinance from God and institutions like law enforcement. People, I have no problems paying federal taxes for that. You know why? I was just reminded of this this weekend. I read a story about a man in New Jersey who was picked up and he was charged with scouting U.S. targets for the terror group Hezbollah, which is based out of the Middle East. This guy was targeting places like the Statue of Liberty. My family was just there last week. My wife and son. The Lincoln Memorial. Fenway Park in Boston. Iconic places. Well, our tax dollars go to the kind of protection that stops those terrorists before they act. Hallelujah, praise God. New Living Translation puts that verse this way. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what's right, and they will honor you. I like that. Very basic. Listen, a lot of people, even criminals, they make a calculated decision when they commit a crime. It's called cost-benefit analysis. It really is. The benefit is what you're going to get in the crime. Okay, how much am I going to make ripping off these people or what have you? And you compare that to the penalty. We didn't used to have in civilizations the problems we have today with crime. You know why? Because until recently, violations like murder, robbery, rape, they were all non-existent in places like communist China. You know why robbery is, happens very rarely in Muslim nations? Because they cut the hands off of the robber. That'll pretty much do it for me. Looking at the return on investment, okay? Severe punishment, continue. now I'm not advocating our, our country do that. This is being recorded. I don't want anybody to freak out, all right? No matter how appealing it may sound in the flesh, all right? Don't go there, but I'm just saying there is a principle to be derived that's found in this text. That is the punishment of evil. 
That, that continues to be a factor here. Law enforcement, when it's good, helps deter crime. Because it says, if rulers are not a terror, and that word phobos, where we get phobia from, just strikes fear and terror. If they're not a terror to good, that means they are to bad. Law enforcement's supposed to be a terrible thing to strike terror in the minds of criminals. You live this every day. How many of you, when you're driving and you look over your shoulder and you see the police car on the side of the road, you all of a sudden start slowing down? Right, Seth? Smoky pokey. Watch out for the popo. Okay? Why do you do that? This verse. You have fear of the authorities. You don't want to get popped. Listen, just picture our sin-soaked society without law and a healthy fear of it. What would you have? You'd have anarchy. You'd have chaos in the streets. You'd have the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what lawlessness breeds. This is why one of America's founding fathers, James Madison, said, quote, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, end quote. That's really good theology that influenced good government. You're going to hear the argument, by the way, too, that government shouldn't legislate morality. This text proves the opposite. The government is precisely mandated to legislate morality. Not only is it natural, it's necessary, right? And listen, we legislate morality every day when you hear that argument. Right now, it's becoming a crime. And if you, if a restaurant serves plastic straws in communities in South Florida, and you might think, oh, that's benign, not a big deal. That's somebody's view of morality. Because God forbid a turtle be found with a straw in his nose. Uh, it sounds funny. That's what set off the whole thing. Okay, so that is someone's view of legislating morality. And that's not the only where it happens, of course. We have laws against wife beating, which is good, stealing, assault, pedophilia, drug sales, drunken driving, many other immortal, immortal, immoral behaviors, and rightly so. So we impose our morality on society through law. Folks, to get real politically, this is why God is tough on crime. You know, you want to know where God is on the issues? When it comes to crime, God's tough on crime. He's hard on crime. He doesn't play around. Because again, it's clear in the text. The biggest reason we have government is to punish evil, to protect the innocent, and encourage that which is good. And the thought continues in the text, verse 4 finally. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The real avenger is not Captain America. It's the local police. All right? And other forms of law enforcement. That's quite a warning on authority. That's what we're talking about. It says the rulers are servants. It means they're ministers for your good. But if you're doing wicked, literally evil, be afraid. You should be. There is to be a healthy fear, again, of law enforcement because they have the power to punish. And you know what? It says they don't use the sword for nothing in vain, right? In fact, a commentator on this passage once wrote, 
even a communist dictator is better than no state at all, end quote. If it's for keeping anarchy and chaos off the streets, it can be. The sword, what is that? We talked about it this summer when we were in Genesis in our Back to the Beginning series. That's capital punishment, folks. Plain and simple. The Bible is pro-capital punishment. You cannot make a good argument otherwise. It's too clear. Genesis 9-6. First law in the first covenant. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Basically, that's a very simple requirement of an exchange life. Life for a life. Capital punishment, if you think it through properly, is actually based on the sanctity of life. The law shows that life is so sacred and that man is not to destroy it because he's made in the image of God to preserve the sanctity of life. God has put laws to protect life by giving the ultimate punishment to those who take it. And over the centuries, the methods, by the way, evolved. They went into hangings and the electric chair, the 20th century, the gas chamber. But the fear of government used to be a deterrent to evil. really was. Because the punishment was to be impartial, pitiless, and swift. Swift. Not like today. Capital crime, you're on death row, minimum 15 years, sometimes 20 and on. And Solomon warned about that. Ecclesiastes 8.11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Yeah, you take away the power, the authority of the government. Capital punishment today is a very benign form of execution. It involves injections. It's the same way you euthanize or put your pet to sleep. Is that a deterrent to murder? I don't think so. Punishment used to be. There were three forms of punishment. Basically, you had deterrence. That was one of the three big theories of punishment. And that would go not only capital punishment, but corporal punishment, things like whipping and physical stuff. Then you have retribution and you have reform. Those were the other two, generally. Retribution is what? You know the word. Has the idea of payback. Has the idea of you do the crime, you do the time. Then there's the idea of reform, the third idea. That began, by the way, with our American prison system, as we know it today back in the 19th century and forward. That had the goal of rehabilitating a criminal so that he or she would turn into a well-behaved citizen. You came up with things like parole, probation. But to be honest with you, to be objective, objectively speaking, that theory hasn't worked so well. Verse 4 tells us something else, that the government has been appointed by God to be an avenger. The word in Greek literally means a punisher, a one that exacts revenge for the judicial system. Our system has moved away from that. So what have we been talking about so far? A call to warning, a, a call to authority, a warning on authority, that's obedience. We obey the call and the warning. So, how should we live as Christian citizens in relation to our government in the world? Basically, same way we did 2,000 years ago. Pray for rulers, respect their office, submit, pay your taxes, as we'll see more next time. Are there exceptions now? It's got to be in the back of your head. 
from the beginning. Is it ever right to practice civil disobedience? And if so, how? How can you be a godly rebel? Can you be a Bonhoeffer? I promised I would answer that. And you got to think about this because there's challenges today. There's the Kentucky marriage license clerk. Remember that case? She would not submit to the government to give a stamp of license approval on same-sex marriages. Conversion therapy laws. In Broward and Palm Beach County, it is now illegal for a licensed Christian counselor to give the gospel and a way out to a homosexual who comes to them voluntarily seeking a change. It's another one. College admissions. Hiring requirements. College clubs on campus are now banning Christian clubs like InterVarsity or Young Life, which just happened at Duke University last week, for college clubs that want equal access, but they have a statement of faith that college officials don't like. What do they do? Marriage bakers, florists, photographers. There's a 74-year-old great-grandmother who's a florist, and she's now asking the Supreme Court to take a second look at her case. Last week, she just appealed that. She spent five years so far defending her business and her conscience in court because she referred a homosexual friend to nearby florists because her faith kept her from creating the flower arrangements for that wedding. What is she to do? Should she fight? Should she submit? Romans 13, 1. What do you do when the state commands you to do something God forbids or forbids what God commands? Picketing, petitions. Can you do that? Paying taxes to an unjust government. Right now, 300 billion of taxpayer dollars are going every year to fund a family-friendly organization called Planned Parenthood. I don't want to pay taxes for that. What do you do? That's the law. You've got to pay your taxes. We'll, we'll dig into that next time. What about Rahab the Heartland? Should she have hid the spies and lied about it? Joshua 2. Corey Ten Boom's family, Anne Franks. They hid Jewish families and lied about it in their cellar during Nazi Germany. The Civil War. Was it biblically justified? The Civil Rights Movement. Those persecuted, those African Americans, emotionally, our heart goes out to them. Face value, they obviously broke the command of Romans 13.1. John Stott, in his commentary, said, quote, Whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. End quote. There is precedent for biblically justifiable civil disobedience. If you're taking note, Take note, I'm going to give you four cases, four principles of civil disobedience. You'll want to know this because this may be coming to a USA near you. Number one, preaching. Preaching. The law tells you not to preach, you preach. Just like the Sanhedrin laid it on Peter and John, Acts 4 and Acts 5. They scourged them. They said, this preaching about this Jesus of Nazareth, 
It's got to stop. And the Jews were the authority of that community in the Roman Empire on a local basis at the time. Peter's response was, we ought to obey God rather than man. Second one, prayer. Preaching then prayer. Daniel 6. The governor at the time was jealous of Daniel, the way he was coming up in the food chain in the government, being a Jew. Brought over in the Babylonian captivity. There's an edict that says, hey, these people like to pray. Let's rule out prayer. Daniel's response, so classic, so in your face, Daniel 6.10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So he gets the law. It's a brand new law. And he says, let me open up the windows so you can see me more clearly break the law. I'm practicing civil disobedience and I want you to get a better look at it. Third, idolatry. Preaching, prayer, idolatry. You know the stories also with Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, right? He and his three friends refused to obey the king's dietary regulations. They disobeyed the law, but in a way that honored the emperor because they came up with an alternative plan. Hey, let's go vegan. Show you for a week and a half. All right. And we'll see who's looking better. Let's see if your law is any good. Kind of like a petition in a way. It was very respectful. And Daniel 3, not so much because they were told to break God's commandment against idolatry, worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and they went, uh-uh, 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 no can do. And as a result, they were willing and able to be thrown into the fiery furnace before the Lord delivered them. That's civil disobedience. Fourthly, very interesting in our day today, life, life, preaching prayer, idolatry, and life. Esther 3, Exodus 1, Hebrew midwives. That was like the first pro-life movement, I think, recorded in history. Think about it. We've talked about it before on Sanctity of Life Sunday, right? Pharaoh says, I, wanted, I want these Jewish babies done away with. There's too many Jews right now in Egypt. We got to cut the population. Sounds like China and that policy. Kill them. And the Hebrew midwives who helped in the deliveries said, no, they came up with a story. They're giving birth too quickly. These women, we can't stop it, etc." That's civil disobedience. Esther, you don't think about Esther on this often, do you? She interceded to the king on behalf of the chosen people of God. Haman wanted to wipe them out. Mordecai said, because if you went to the king, by the way, whether it was Ajaharius, Artaxerxes, whatever, if you went without an appointment, literally, even as the queen, even as a wife, you broke the law and you could be executed. And she knew that. And her uncle Mordecai said, you have been chosen for a time such as this. You got to do this. Why? Because you have to save your people. You have to save innocent life. And so she did. Micah 6.8 calls us to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before Almighty God. True justice. So listen, if you're thinking about withholding from Caesar or disobey government authorities that God's placed over you, ask yourself two questions. Am I being prohibited from preaching praying, or am I being ordered to worship idols or murder innocent life? And second, if I disobey, am I going to do it the right way? 
Now, how that applies to these other cases, I leave that between you and your conscience and the Holy Spirit. It's important that we respect the office, even though we don't respect the man or the woman in the office, because that's God's will. So we can conclude this way as we close. We are to submit to every authority and law to the state up to the point that our obeying means disobeying God. Does that make sense? So we need to seek God's wisdom and prayer on this, folks. We need to pray because we're to be in the world, not of it. We need to be led by the Spirit on some of these issues, how we think about them and apply them, the specific cases that are difficult. We have to wrestle with them. But we should be thinking that we are to submit or be subject to the governing authorities as much as God allows us to. And next time we'll get into how we politically engage. How far should we go? How political should we be? How politically involved within the context of taxes? We'll talk about that next time as we continue to walk the line between church and state. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, again, we need your wisdom. Book of James asks us, tells us, commands us to ask in prayer for wisdom each and every day in discernment. We need that to navigate these waters between church and state. Help us, Lord, to make good, wise, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting decisions when we're faced with these difficult cases. Do we obey or not obey? And your word has laid a principle down that we are to submit to the governing authorities. You have appointed them and ordained them. That is a call to authority, and we have a warning of authority. We're thankful in this country that it was founded on these kinds of principles, Lord, that would punish evil and promote good. And may that happen again, Lord God. Lord, as we've been reading this week in our Bible reading plan, as I close, I think of... Paul and his first letter to Timothy in that church in Ephesus where he called us, Lord, that we would pray with thanksgiving as we just did for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Lord, I pray for our president. I pray for our vice president. I pray for the justices that sit on the Supreme Court. I pray for Governor DeSantis in Florida our state legislature. I pray for our federal Congress, both in the House and Senate side. Lord, I pray for our mayor in our, in our communities, our city and county commissions, each one of them, Lord, that you would entrust them wisdom and grace through common grace to lead and administer government wisely, Father, so that we could lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. And finally, we pray for their salvation for those, many of them, I'm sure, that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Just as I pray for anyone in this room who does not know Christ, not sure where they would be today in eternity if they were to pass, may they know that, have the answer to that question, which is far more important than the questions we've been wrestling with today. If anyone is not in Christ today, doubts they're in Christ, may they turn to you and trust in Jesus by faith alone, by God's grace alone, according to his word alone and for his glory alone, that they would be saved. They would escape judgment by having their sins forgiven, and they would have peace with God and would be made right before God. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and we said, Amen. Amen. 
Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on our ministry, please visit our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's Christcomchurch.org. 